Hi and welcome to the first episode of The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin and I'm Sam and we're two girls who have been friends for a very long time and we love everything true crime. We created this podcast as we love talking about true crime and we hope you enjoy learning about it just as much as we do. The case we're going to look into today is known as one of Scotland's most notorious double murders which took place in the city where Sam and I grew up. The nearly four decade manhunt changed a part of Scottish law for what it is today. This is a story of the murder of Helen Scott and Kristen Eady, most infamously known as the World's End Murders. It all started on Saturday the 15th of October 1977, when a group of girlfriends decided to go for drinks uptown. They ended up in the World's End pub located on the Royal Mile in the old town of Edinburgh city centre. Amongst those group of girls was Christine Eady and Helen Scott, both 17 years old from East Lothian. I read that when they arrived at the pub late evening, there was over about 200 people in this bar. Sam, I think you can relate to me with that one, like you've been on a night out in Edinburgh on the Royal Mile. It's always busy. (laughs) These people knew each other and they knew these girls and, you know, they're 17, they're not from Edinburgh, like they know they've travelled in. I can imagine they were very well known. Absolutely. So this is when they said that two strangers that nobody recognised, so they were out-of-towners, as they called them, came in and they showed interest in Helen and Christine. And I think it's funny that even people noticed there was people that weren't regulars in this pub. So this is a pub in, you know, the capital city of Edinburgh, yet people know who frequents there and who doesn't. So for the majority of the night, they're at the World's End pub drinking and two of the girls in the group leave to go to an impromptu party. And did Christine and Helen stay? Yeah, they stayed at the pub, but they didn't want to go um, because they were having a good time with the two men that that showed interest in them, which I get is understandable. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Nobody left on their own. So I think in the girls' eyes, everyone was safe. Everyone had a person. Yeah, exactly. So the, those two girls, they went to the party and they stayed with the two men until closing time, which was around about 12 o'clock. They were last seen outside the pub with the two men because one of them had a caravanette and they got offered a lift home. And, well, they took it, which yeah, is understandable. Yeah, I, I actually get that. <laughs> it's yeah, October. Back then. Yeah, back then. And they're heading to Slothian. Which is understandable because it's October and you're having yeah. to travel all the way out to Slothian and... Like, I wouldn't get a bus. We've grown up where we can walk home. Like, we knew you can walk home from the Royal Mile, whereas, you know, all the way to East Lothian, like, I can totally get why. If they were offered a lift, especially back then when there wasn't this huge danger about taking a lift off somebody, I totally get why they took a lift. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so they did leave with these two guys. A witness actually saw them all leaving together. Um, He described it, though, at a distance. So he said that the two men were with them at a distance, which to me is a bit eerie. Um, but little did that guy know that was actually the last time that both Helen and Christine would be seen alive. So when Helen didn't arrive home that night, her, her parents were worried. Like her dad said she'd been going out a lot more the last couple of weeks and hadn't been herself, which I totally get it. She's 17, do you know, she's from Islodian. So she's gone into the capital city. She's out on a night out with her friends. Like she's probably stayed in Edinburgh. She's probably gone to this impromptu party. I get why they weren't a hundred percent worried but I get why they were just a little bit worried however her mum actually did wait up for her which I'm but sure that's quite a mum thing to do yeah yeah I mean, like, the times not... that I've came home and my mum has been sat up and I'm like oh no <laughs> oh no <laughs> I'm sorry Tracy so yeah I totally get that um however unfortunately none of these girls would ever actually make it home 
The following afternoon around 2pm, Christine's dead body was actually found at a beach in Aberlady, which is in East Lothian. Mm-hmm. Um, she had been beaten, raped and strangled with her own underwear. Wow. So that sounds awful, but it gets worse. So her hands were tied behind her back with parts of a pair of tights that she had worn and her mouth had been stuffed with a pair of underwear which was held in place by a bra, and the other leg of her tights was tied around her neck. Wow. I can't decide in my head if that means it was either an impromptu killing and it happened so quickly and actually the killers didn't have anything to kill her with, or if that's very clever because they've not left behind anything they've bought, they've not left behind anything they've actually used everything that was on her, which is horrendous. Which is quite smart. Like, but it, yeah, exactly. Awful, but... It, it could exactly. have been premeditated. And if we take mm-hmm. it back to when you said that the the witness saw the two men leaving with them at the From pub, a distance. From a distance. Makes mm-hmm. you believe, well, it's not like they were interested in them. It, they weren't yeah. all over each other or they weren't like all friendly yeah. friendly. Or like, why were they at a distance? Like, what were those two guys talking about? If it was these two guys that's killed them. Yeah, absolutely. Because you don't know. They could have just been two men. That exactly. They them off somewhere and something no. else could have happened. Exactly. But, but where's Helen? Is Helen not with her? No. Helen's body was found six miles down the road in a field near Haddington. So they're okay. they're both found in East Lothian, six mm-hmm. miles apart. The main difference between her and Christine was that Helen's top half was mm-hmm. still covered. So she had okay. her, her top on and her new coat that she had just purchased days before. So her belt had been used to tie her hands behind her back. Okay. And the belt from Christine's jumpsuit was around her neck. Christine's? And Christine's jumpsuit. Wow, okay. So, so it makes you think, like, were they killed together? But then why dump them apart? Exactly. And there was a footprint marked on her face. Wow. So was there a struggle? Yeah, that's or... also very personal. Absolutely. And that's brutal. Mm-hmm. And, like, as you said, if they were killed together, they were found six miles apart. But they weren't buried underground. Dog walkers found them. You know, it wasn't like, right, we'll bury this person here and then we'll we'll dig another hole down the road. No one yeah. will see it. They were just, they dumped, were just dumped. Completely yeah. dumped. It, it just sounds even more evil. Yeah, you know, no, definitely. I know even if it wasn't premeditated, if, if this was by, say, by accident, mm-hmm. you wouldn't not have much experience in it, but you wouldn't think, right, we'll part ways, we'll put one person here, one person there, and we'll just leave them for everyone yeah, no, to definitely. be found. You would be definitely. panicking like crazy. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I can imagine so. So one of the worst parts about this was how their parents found out. Um, we don't actually know a lot about Christine. I think her family have kept it quite out of the public eye, which I totally understand. Like if this was one of my family members, I wouldn't want all these details plastered everywhere, which it has its pros and cons. You know, as more people know about it, there can be more help. However, it's also such a personal thing but Helen's family actually found out on the radio so around 4pm that afternoon her dad was listening to the radio waiting for Helen to still come home from this night out and he heard about these two bodies being found in East Lothian police then called the family home and asked them to identify her coat which was hers it was new she just bought it and this actually ends up being one of the crucial pieces of evidence and the help to find the killer. So these two murders completely stopped Edinburgh in its tracks. Two girls had gone on a night out in Edinburgh and actually not come home, which is horrendous. 
However, the aftermath of these crimes is actually why this case is so infamous. For the police, for the families and for everyone in Edinburgh watching this case, this was the beginning of a 37-year manhunt to find the killers. In the late 1977, the Lothian and Borders Police, which are the police force in Edinburgh and the Lothians, they conducted a high-profile criminal investigation. So they collected a list of over 500 suspects and they took over 13,000 statements from members of the public. That's, that's a lot crazy. <laughs> even to this day that is a lot of people it is wow. and like, obviously some of these statements it might just be oh i saw a man he kind of he looked creepy to me he was walking or, down the street yeah or you i know, saw the girls walking to the pub yeah like totally but that's an amazing amount of police work and i think the families must have actually felt so good at the start of this investigation because that's so much work getting done despite their efforts they were unable to identify a culprit like okay. they couldn't find anyone so uh, the, the case, it commanded widespread attention in the Scottish media at the time and also, I'm guessing, around the UK because it, I know that, well, if things are quite large in Scotland or England and Wales, we don't always hear about it, but this seems huge. Yeah. So I'm yeah, guessing no, around the whole of the UK. Yeah, um, And a photo booth picture of the two girls that was used by police for part mm-hmm. of their appeals and information. And you can tell, like... Oh, when we even see that picture we recognize it yeah you, you know? can show that to anybody and they will tell you who that is and that's one of the worst things about it because it's such an infamous picture now so at the time the media reported that several witnesses had told police they had seen helen scott and christine sitting near the public telephone in the bar talking with the two men so we already knew that anyway so that was quite widespread information neither of these men have been traced or since presented themselves to the police so they haven't come forward which makes you think well if they're yeah, kind of getting I'm shown sorry. as oh there's two dodgy. men yeah like I would, if, that, if that was me I'd be the first one there to be like yeah I'm, I'm like sorry, I'm I sorry I just it. took them home <laughs> yeah <laughs> I just drove her home I'm sorry <laughs> yeah exactly. absolutely but they they didn't come forward absolutely wow. like no one at all red um, so, flag. exactly red flag number one <laughs> <laughs> um so speculation that the killings had been the work of two men was heightened when it was revealed that the knots used to tie the girls' hands behind their backs were two different types of knots. So okay. with that information of the two men at the bar yeah. coming forward. I think because you know, we've been given that, that there were two men in the bar. I think in my head it was always two killers anyway, but it's good that that's actually confirmed. Exactly. Because you, you might think, oh, it could have just been that guy's friend. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Who knows? Um, but no, so two different knot, like types of knots. Albeit, okay. I'm not going to lie, when I tie a knot, <laughs> times they all look different. They're all granny knots. But this yeah. could also mean maybe one of them was left-handed. You mm-hmm. know how you, you mean wrap anything, them over differently. Yeah. So that, that sounds like, great, this is fantastic information. We've got two guys in, because we know this, because the knots were tied differently, we need to find these guys. However, another but... Mm-hmm. In May 1978, the police force announced that they were scaling down the investigation. How, how long is that since the crime? Is that like six months? Seven months. But so yeah, eight wow. months. And they that had done must, so For the much family, work. that's such a roller coaster. Absolutely. Because you think, well, the police force at the start and even the public and media and things, it was huge. They were, they were getting all this information, but mm-hmm. they, they just had nothing to, nothing to go on, which must mm-hmm. be such like... I get you, you'd feel angry because they, they scaled down the investigation and especially nowadays we, we learn of some investigations that get money thrown into them. Exactly. When 
you kind of know the answer to it but they're, mm-hmm. they're not giving up whereas these no. ones but at the same time you're like well if they've got nothing to go on what more can they do yeah actually reading on from that like the next sign of progress was 10 years later in 1988 that's 10 years and I think you know I think during this time I'm sure one of the parents died her mum her mum died was it Christine yeah yeah and I think you know 10 years is a long time a lot can happen in 10 years and for no progress that's crazy but obviously 10 years later 1988 this wave of forensic science comes forward DNA so I totally forget that they didn't have DNA when they did the first investigation. DNA Which was still a very crazy. new thing. Yeah, like now you watch programmes and you're like, DNA, DNA. But obviously back then, DNA wasn't a thing. So now they had DNA. But DNA is still very, very new. This was going to provide detectives with a kind of genetic profile of the people in contact with the victim. So samples from Helen's new coat were taken to the lab, but no profile came up. Yeah, That's again. crazy that they still have the coat 10 years later. Well, it was a main piece of evidence, I think, do you know, because things were found on it. And I think uh-huh. they kept it. And also, I don't know if your family would want that back. Well, yeah, that's true. Exactly. So now we're going nine years later. So we're now in 1997. So this is like 20 years since the initial killing happened. Strathclyde police scientists finally are able to pinpoint a profile from her coat. So we have a profile, but we don't know who this profile belongs to. The police then reopen this and they start tracking down every man who was drinking in the world's end between 10pm and midnight on the night in question every man and I think obviously if someone asked me where I was like 10 years ago five years ago five minutes ago I'm not too sure but I suppose with this night and what came with it you probably do you know would be like oh I was there that night so you probably oh absolutely yeah do you know so people would have remembered they were there so the police decide to take a swab from everybody who was born between 1937 and 1960 who had convictions of a sexual crime that they were in the pub that night so I'm supposing that wouldn't be too many people I'd like to think they also took swabs from anybody else who was a suggested suspect whether it be from the police's radar or from somebody just saying like i think you should investigate them so 400 people were tested and all of these tests came back negative can you Doesn't imagine that just that is so deflating again yeah again however years though, later however though i'm going to kind of put a spin on it i think that's quite positive because they've just ruled out 400 suspects yeah that is actually a really good positive Do you know they have just ruled out so many people so that would have been another 400 people if, like, without this, they could have had to investigate all 400 of those people separately. But they've just completely ruled them out, which is amazing. Um, but yet again, years later, we're now into the early 2000s, Samantha. Helen's coat is tested again. And this time, two profiles show up. One more significant than the other, but there is two profiles on the scope. And they're put through the database, and finally, they have a hit. Oh, the name that it? comes up is Angus St. Clair. Now, this is the first time his name has ever come into play with this investigation, but immediately the police are like, we know who he is. He was currently serving life in prison for child offences, horrific child offences. And a few years prior to this, he was investigated and charged with the murder of another girl in the 70s. It wasn't in Edinburgh, was it? She was in Glasgow. She was in Glasgow. However, she was he was already in jail and he was charged with her crime. So even though he was already serving life in prison, so this wouldn't have done anything to him, However, he was charged with it. So, Samantha, do you want to tell us a little bit about Angus Sinclair so the listeners can grasp what kind of person he was? So, personally speaking, my word would be evil. But that's <laughs> no opinions. Opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just here to give you facts. No, definitely. I don't think there's someone in the UK that wouldn't describe him as evil, but yeah. 
So I'll tell you a little bit about him. He was born in 1945 and he grew up in the St George's Cross area of Glasgow. I'm mm-hmm. just going to say it was middle class, working class family. He wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. well off. He was just one of us in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing to say about him, though, was that he was a bit of an outsider. He would watch okay. the kids play. He he stole things. He He broke into houses and things like that. But the right. main kind of red flag alert, shall we red say. Red flag too. Absolutely. So in 1961, at the age of 16, he killed his first victim. Yeah, I would definitely say that's a red flag. <laughs> yeah. Would you like a second red flag? Jeez. She was seven years old. And he was how old? 16. Wow. Okay. So was he caught for this? He was, thankfully. But in a way, okay. it's kind of like he, he got himself caught because once he he killed this little girl... He called the ambulance himself and he just said, a wee girl has fallen down the stairs. Wow. She didn't fall down the stairs. Just FYI, if you didn't gather that. Um, So he received a 10-year... Sorry, no, I was just going to add to that. Do you know, so many people actually do that where they like to stand and watch their murders unfold. You hear about people actually turning up at like funerals of their victims. And I think that that's a huge flag of what he's doing there. Like he's killed her and he's watching people try and figure out what happened when he knows what happened. It's like he gets a kick out of it. Yeah, definitely. So anyway, this, this wee girl was called Catherine Rehill. Well, he was given a 10-year sentence in jail, but he only wow. served six years in prison. <laughs> six years so he served basically her life that's crazy but when he was in jail he took up a trade so painter and decorator and things so he was he was doing well for life like Mm -hmm. you know he had something to to come out to but Mm -hmm, the thing is I think this is a very important thing that I'll say it's a quote from a psychiatrist report from from back Mm -hmm. in the time when he was in prison but remember even after this quote that he got out after six years so Mm. the psychiatrist said I do not think that any form of psychotherapy is likely to benefit his condition and he will constitute a danger from now onwards. He is obsessed by sex and given the minimum of opportunity, he will repeat these offences. That's quite a big warning, you know. Although, yeah, and he was released in 1967 and became a husband and a father. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. So okay. he, he got married in, in 1970, I think, I believe, and when he was 25, mm-hmm. to a trainee nurse called Sarah Hamilton. Wow. Yeah, so he lived a pretty normal life. Yeah, well, I believe that with his painting, painting and decorating skills, that kind of gave him a chance to have a business, but also maybe go about and possibly kill or yeah. abuse a few more people. I believe that because there's so much to say about him that we could do maybe another... A Another... spin-off just about him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, there's absolutely. So there's so much to say, and there's so yeah. many names that need, you know, so many victims that need recognition. Yeah, um, absolutely. However, I think, yeah, in this case, we're focusing on the justice for Christine and Helen. I think, yeah, I think Angus and Claire is something we could definitely come back to, but I think that's a good way to sum them up so you know who we're talking about. So, yeah, so obviously they have got his DNA on this jacket. They still aren't 100% sure who the second DNA belonged to, but obviously... He's been questioned by the police. Scientists are continuing looking for the second killer. Now, it was noted at the time that a male relative of Sinclair's wife shared characteristics of the suspect. Quite common characteristics. I don't 100% know what they mean by that. I, I don't know if it means the way they walk, the way they look. However, they narrowed Maybe down... Maybe that's what she found, why she found Angus so appealing to yeah, marry. 
you hear about things like that. Yeah, yeah. They start narrowing down all the males in her family by process of elimination and they are left with Gordon Hamilton. Now, Gordon Hamilton is her brother. However, he is dead and he'd been cremated. So there's absolutely no evidence oh, from them. Great. So as far as I'm concerned, that's a dead end. Absolutely. No. Not no. to police and forensic scientists, it was not. So he was also a painter decorator who had helped a girlfriend decorate her flat in Glasgow and he done it all up then and there. So the police go to this girlfriend's house. They managed to get where this girl lived and he had put coving on the ceiling. The police removed this coving and found DNA in the coving. They check it and this is the first sample they found on Helen's coat. No way. In Wait. the ceiling? In the ceiling. Wow. So that is what they did to get that. So the first ever sample that was found on Helen's coat way, way back, before we even had Angus and Claire, remember, the one that was found, I think it was 1997, that's his. Wow. So that's another huge bit of evidence that, you know, it's his brother-in-law. So one more area that they wanted to look into was obviously the infamous, the caravanette that was seen. So at the time of the murders, St. Clair was known to own a Toyota Hyatt, which he converted into a caravanette. Funnily enough, he sold this a few months after the murders in February 1978. Around the time, the police were looking for a similar vehicle being identified and linked to the murders. So, of course, he sold it. I However, it had many over... Him sound guilty. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So this vehicle had many owners and was eventually scrapped in Musselburgh in 1998. However, one of the previous owners, obviously this is a caravanette, they've taken their family on holiday, they've got lovely photos of them standing in front of it, posing <laughs> with it. Do you know, of course they do. And the police noticed the upholstery inside this caravanette yeah so they tracked down a morris marina car which had been converted and the upholstery matched i can so just police... imagine it though being yeah in the 70s like brown yeah. And orangey yeah i can actually like yeah i, I don't even <laughs> want to picture it but yeah so they basically then matched the samples of the fibers from helen's coat to the upholstery in this car and samantha they were a match oh my god this is insane <laughs> How we have gone from not being able to find anybody in 1977 to now they are managing to find fibres from a car seat. This is that crazy. That is crazy. But, and like, so, if you were the family that then owned that car, you would feel awful. And exactly. You have so many happy memories. In yeah, and you're like, oh, exactly. So, anyway, they charged Sinclair. Obviously, they unfortunately cannot charge Gordon Hampton because he's dead, but they charged Sinclair and he obviously pleads not guilty. And this is the start of the first trial. So in September 2007, the first court case goes to trial. Now, Sinclair is pleading not guilty. Now, he admits that he had sex with one of these girls. However, he says it was consensual and this was at a different location. He said that he'd never been to the beach, he'd never been to the field, which, I'm sorry, but consensual sex with one of the victims and you've never thought of coming forward. Do you know what yeah. I mean? All the, the police have been looking for people and you've physically had sex with one of them on the night they were murdered and you're like, oh, I better not bring that forward. Guilty. Yeah, red flag 100, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, definitely not great. However, halfway through this trial, it actually collapses and the judge says that the evidence that Sinclair provided any rule was neutral. neutral. So this case is thrown out. Yeah, this case is wow. thrown out and that's it. Basically... Everybody in the country, like I've spoke to parents about this. I've spoke to loads of people telling them we're doing this and trying to get research people that were living in Edinburgh at this time. And they've said that everybody knew this guy was guilty and everyone just watched the one trial they had against and be thrown away. Obviously in Scotland, we had the double jeopardy law, so he was not allowed to be tried again. So that was the one chance thrown away. However, here's a good but. 
in 2011, the double je- there was a change in the double jeopardy law. This change meant that if you've got fresh evidence or if you've got if you've got a reason, you can now be mm-hmm. tried again. So uh, as long as they don't get, just go and throw the exact same evidence that they did in 2007, they have to bring at least one mm-hmm. piece, one new piece. Mm-hmm. One new this piece. person, one new piece. This person can now be retried. Which, in my mm-hmm. personal opinion, I think that's a, it was a great change. This law was actually brought in by Kenny McCaskill, who was the Cabinet Secretary for Justice in Scotland 2011. And I think it's good to actually name him, because I didn't know his name before we started investigating this. And I think without him, the, what, the future of this case wouldn't have happened. Absolutely. So thank you, Kenny. Th- thank you, Kenny. But I think, no, definitely, as you were saying, Sam, I think this was... I think this law is absolutely right. I think there's, I forget that there's places like America doesn't have this law. Like, I think it's crazy that America comes need up. a law like that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, yeah, but as you said, they needed new evidence, absolutely. which is what they found. So, as you know, the law was amended in 2011, but Sinclair didn't get taken to court again until 2014. So, that's been seven years since, since the first court case fell through. And wow. 37 years since the murder. 37 years. Wow. But yeah, so obviously they did find new evidence. So on the 13th of October 2014, the second trial begins. Now the new evidence is just another kind of timestamp on how good forensic science is getting. So there's a new forensic device called a crime light. Now this crime light is basically they shine upon something and you can see where DNA is. Do you know what I mean? Oh, is it like that, the, the blue light? Like yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so they use this and it shows DNA on the ligatures which they were tied up with. What? Well, that's so crazy. You know how they Isn't keep it? all this, all of the things? Yeah, the and like, and imagine the what state this would be in. Uh-huh. So yeah, so it proves that these two men definitely tied them up and didn't, obviously, they had to rule out that they definitely consensually didn't go with them, which no one believed. This, along with forensic soil analysis, proved that Helen was alive when she entered the field, disproving Sinclair's previous statement that it wasn't him that brought her to the field. So obviously he went into that field with her alive and he's came out and she stayed in. Wow. So that's kind of, you know, if I was in the jury, you'd be like, well... Yep, guilty. Guilty. (laughs) Whatever. Obviously, again, they go to trial. Again, he's given his same story. He decides to speak again at the trial. And I was reading into one of the conversations... And it is absolutely horrendous. So he says that him and Gordon took one of the girls into the back of his van in a nearby park and had consensual sex. Now, the prosecutor asks him, how did you know it was consensual? To which Sinclair replies, they didn't say no. The prosecutor did say yes. <laughs> yeah. The prosecutor then says, well, what kind of conversation did you have? And Sinclair replies, absolutely nothing. Speechless. I don't know what Absolutely to say nothing. for that one. Yeah. Like, even yeah. if you were, st- I know one red flag that he's standing in the court himself, mm-hmm. speaking for himself. Yeah. But two, I do, do you know what? The most infamous case of somebody getting up to stand in court themselves is obviously Ted Bundy. I know that Sinclair didn't, you know, he wasn't his own lawyer, but to get up in a courtroom and being accused of a murder, you know you did. Shut up. Just don't yeah, say anything. Absolutely. Get like to get up there and try and defend yourself like why would you do that I wouldn't even speak for myself if I was innocent no me neither I'd, I'd end up saying something and making myself mm-hmm. be guilty I'd, I'd just be like okay mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I did that exactly but so I just the... don't know why you'd go up under oath and try and defend yourself 
No, and while you're up there defending yourself under oath, but you're already lying anyway, why don't mm-hmm. you just lie a wee bit more and say that you had a great conversation? And she said yes. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? That's the thing. He just didn't, because that's the thing, way back to what we said at the start of this, he's pure evil. Yes, he didn't care. No, exactly. But yes, finally, Angus Sinclair was found guilty. 37 years. Did he get... So he was already in prison, though. He was already in prison, so it doesn't really matter. However, I do believe it matters. And do you know how much time he got? Life, I believe. Was it not the longest life sentence given in Scottish court? Mm -hmm. But he got given 37 years, which was the longest that had been given out of Scotland that time. But also, it was 37 years since the murders happened. Well, I, I don't want to say it's great, but it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, oh, no, that it's is fantastic. Justice. Yeah, definitely. However, uh, the annoying part is that in the, on the 11th of March, in 19, Angus Sinclair actually died in prison alone in his cell. At the time, I read that he was bedbound and he was incontinent due to a series of strokes. However, he served under five years of that 37-year sentence. Which, which is ridiculous. Yeah, to me, like... Yeah, he died. He probably died in a very lonely way. However, I would have liked to have seen him lived out as long as that sentence as he could have. Absolutely, because with that um, sentence, he would have been had to have been at least. I know this isn't that possible, but he would have had to have been at least one hundred and six before he he even yeah. got considered for parole. So for him, which to would have just been straight die, up rejected. Oh yeah, but for him, like, I don't want to say it's the easy way out because that's. That's not the way. No, I totally get you. Think about it. But I get that. Five years, and he killed these two girls. Albeit he was already in prison for for um, sexual assault and also another murder. Yeah, exactly. um, We've like he's been proved to have killed about four or five other women. It's like Mm -hmm. for you to just die in prison five years later is a bit. At age of seventy three, that's not old nowadays. No, 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 it's not. Do you know? So but one thing, mm-hmm. did you see that coincidentally he died on the same day that the BBC Crime Watch Roadshow programme profiled his murders? No. Yeah, it's like you can't make it up. It's like such a coincidence. But that's, um, I believe that's what was said. Nice. Um, can I uh, just say a few things about what the, I, I quite like it. I don't like it, but I mean, the judge said a few things in court mm-hmm. what, when he got the convicted as being guilty Mm -hmm. I do not intend to waste many words on you you are well aware that the only sentence I can pass is one of life imprisonment he said that it's quite cold which Mm -hmm. is good it's needed Mm -hmm. and then um, he recited the poem for the fallen so you know the poem that you do on remembrance day yeah yeah Um, so he went they shall grow not old as we that are left grow old Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. And then he said after wow. this, which in, on Remembrance Sunday, I am always holding back tears, not going to lie, mm-hmm. when that's said. So this is such a powerful statement that, that this poem is for fallen, fallen soldiers. But this is what he says no. for why he said this poem. I say that because while all of their loved ones would have wished to see them live on to a ripe old age, the memories they will have of them will always be of two happy, home-loving, innocent girls, unbesmirched by the ravages of time. That is indeed how I think the whole of the country will remember them. And I think to hear a judge doing something like that, like that's, I've never heard that before. No, he, like, it's, it's like, 
I know it's it's their job that they have mm-hmm. to decide. Oh, okay, so this person's guilty or not guilty. Mm-hmm. But it's like it was personal, mm-hmm. or he can he felt the pain of of the families and of of the country. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Yeah, I think whilst we're just talking about Angus and Claire, I think there is so much we could say about him, and I really do think one day we should actually do a wee spin-off episode about him. But I think it would do an injustice if we didn't mention the fact that there is currently potentially four other women that perhaps lost their life to Angus and Claire. However, it's not been confirmed. There is not 100% concrete evidence that it was Angus and Claire. But if you read into these cases, it is pretty much everything that happened to Helen and Christine. So yeah, this all started with the discovery of Frances Barker, who was 37, and she was found in Glasgow in the June of 1977 in the exact same condition that both Helen and Christine were found in. We have Anna Kenny, who was 20 years old, and she was found in the August, yet again, the exact same. We also have Helen Macaulay, who was 36 years old, and she was actually found two weeks before the World's End murders in October 1977, which is a crazy amount of time to think that he could have possibly three women within Absolutely. three weeks. And these were from that we know Glasgow, weren't they? Well, yeah, they yeah, were all from yeah. Glasgow, weren't they? Apart yeah, from the... all these girls were Glasgow apart from the World's End murders. And finally was Agnes Cooney. She was 23 years old. I think one of the worst parts about one of these cases is Frances Barker because somebody actually went to jail for her murder. It was Thomas Young was his name and he continued to plead his innocence until he died in prison in July 2014. So I think it was even worse. 2014? 2014. That is awful. A month before the trial. Now, obviously, there's nothing. This is all just hearsay, and this is just us and our opinions. There is nothing concrete saying that Sinclair murdered them. However, the, I, if the I shoe believe, fits, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. We also, of course, as well have Mary Gallagher, who he was actually charged with her murder, and I just think so many of these things connect. And going back to what his psychiatrist said, I think it's impossible for him to have only killed one child and three women. Absolutely, and because he was already in prison with those 11 sexual offences from young children up to grown women. Um, but the thing is, just another quick note to add, mm-hmm. with all of those all of those women that you've mentioned, even though like we believe that he'd done it, the former deputy chief constable of the police, mm-hmm. Tom Wood, he put together quite a compelling case, um, mm-hmm. and he called it Operation Trinity. And okay. that examined six cases of um, the murders from the seventy-seven. So mm-hmm. that and that included um, all Agnes those women, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and all of these people. So even the police thought that, but they just mm-hmm. had no proper DNA or evidence. So it's horrendous, isn't it? And with you saying that Thomas died in prison, yeah, still yeah. pleading his innocence, horrendous. it's like it's awful. And that no. was that's what his life was. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. I think the reason I d- we definitely picked this story for our first one is because I think it's absolutely horrendous that these two girls or multiple girls, how many girls he took the lives from, would go on a night out and not return home. That should not happen. Absolutely. And for it to happen in the city where me and you have gone on numerous nights out, it makes my blood run cold. Absolutely. Because the thing is, you shouldn't have to... I know this was back in the 70s, but even nowadays, you shouldn't have to feel like you're in danger and especially once you've had a drink like don't get me wrong we've walked home from time before Mm -hmm. it's about an hour an hour and a half Mm -hmm. it's it's not it's not quick but you you should feel like you can Mm -hmm. do that albeit it's a silly thing to do so Mm -hmm. do not walk home on your own always have Mm -hmm. a buddy 
mm-hmm. but it, it's done it's what you do you shouldn't have mm-hmm. to always look behind your back and think well I could get killed mm-hmm. no definitely and I think if there's any lesson to learn from this and I don't believe this should be the way and I've, I speak about this all the time that women should have to do this or men should have to do this not to get themselves in danger but I think if there's any lesson to be learned from this it's to always just stay safe and if something doesn't feel right don't do it you know if you're going on a night out with people stick with at least somebody or tell somebody where you're going or share your location on your iPhone we've done that when I've gone for a walk at night I've, I've sent you my location so you know where I am if something happens and unfortunately Helen and Christine didn't have that opportunity whereas we do Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, that is definitely the message I take from this. And never get a lift from a stranger. No, not at all. No matter if it's a caravanette or a fancy no. jaguar, do not do get not in that get car. In. Yeah, that is that is what I want to finish this episode on. Please, please, please do not take a lift home from a stranger. <laughs>